This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. China's economy has slowed to its lowest growth since 1992, another sign that the country is feeling the impact of the trade war with the United States. The second quarter quarterly report showed GDP at 6.2%, down from 6.4% in the first quarter of the year. Now, at the G20 summit last month, President Trump and China's President Xi Jinping agreed to resume talks toward reaching a new trade deal, but it's not clear what has happened between the two sides since. Beyond the trade war, China is also facing weakened demand from Europe and some Asian countries, which are going through their own economic weakness, and it has excessive debt within its financial system. China's exports have fallen 1.3% year-on-year in the first six months of the year. Imports have dropped 7.3%. Beijing continues to provide stimulus to the economy and avoid damaging job loss numbers, but will this be enough to combat the the slump. With more, we are joined uh, by Marshall Meyer, Professor Emeritus here at the Wharton School, and also by Richard Dasher, who is Director of the U.S. Asia Technology Management Center at Stanford University. Marshall, Richard, as always, great to talk to you both. Good morning. Welcome. Thanks very much for having me, Dan. Thank you. Richard, start with you. What do you make of this latest GDP report? Well, first of all, I think that the uh, tariffs and the trade friction with the U.S. is a relatively small part of what's going on. There are other much bigger forces in play. Uh, The G20 meeting that happened in Japan was quite concerned about a global slowdown in growth. And uh, China's got an aging population that's slowing things down. Uh, China has really over-invested in infrastructure for years, and uh, that's been its main tool for avoiding economic cycle slowdown. And we'll see how that goes from here. Marshall, what are your thoughts? Uh, The same. I could elaborate on it a little bit. Um, If you look uh, at any graph of GDP growth in China, uh, you're going to see a straight slope downward beginning uh, roughly 2009. And this downward slope uh, has mainly to do uh, with, uh, I would say, three forces. One, Richard mentioned, demography. Uh, China's getting older, and we're, we're at the point where the workforce is beginning to shrink. Mm-hmm. Uh, second, uh, which I don't think Richard mentioned, uh, is a phenomenon called regression to the mean. Uh, there's a wonderful set of studies uh, the best one by uh, uh, Larry Summers, who is our Treasury Secretary, President of Harvard, uh, with Lant Pritchett, uh, showing that countries experiencing rapid rates of growth almost always encounter, at some point, very rapid deceleration in growth. So in some sense, the deceleration in China is overdue. Uh, the third factor has to do with what Richard mentioned, and there's a lot behind it excessive reliance on uh, capital investment in China. And and this is something, uh, Marshall, that's been going on for some time now, the want to to improve the infrastructure, the capital investment in that country in in general. So how should potentially China have balanced that with some, and obviously the the trade war piece to it is, is relatively new, but how do you think China potentially should have balanced it if they could have better? I'm not sure what they should have done. Uh, It's pretty clear what they're doing, and 
it, it has to do with the China 2025 plan, uh, which is now in background. They've kind of uh, turned down the volume on their very ambitious industrial policy because it triggers all kinds of responses in the West. Uh, look, um, it, it's a little hard to explain this, and I bet Richard knows a lot more about this than I do. So, Richard, please chime in any time here, if you would, please. Well, I'm really appreciating what you're saying, Marshall, because you've got a very good, clear explanation of some uh, factors that are going on. So here's the story. GDP is a number, and we focus on it because what does it capture? It basically captures the output of goods and services in an economy. Right. And, uh, Richard, tell me if I've got this right. It's the sum of three or four other numbers. There are different ways of calculating it, but the simplest way is consumption, which you can divide into household and government, uh, plus investment, uh, plus uh, net exports. Right. Uh, okay, so it's a simple arithmetic identity. Now, one of the things that's very interesting here is that the net, net exports or currency inflows into China declined to about 1.5% of GDP. Uh, Richard, let me ask you, if, if I may, I don't think this is a very big number. Do you? No, it's, it's quite small. And actually, on the other side, uh, if you get into looking at exports to the U.S., that only accounts for about a 5% of China's uh, total export. So really, what you see, I think, based on what you're saying, is really China focusing in on itself more. And certainly that's been the focus of a lot of policies. About 10 years ago, there was a policy for indigenous innovation. And then you had the China, the, you know, China 2025 policy that created so much trouble. Um, I think that uh, a lot of the situation is that uh, in addition to having way overspent on kind of infrastructure development, China is propping up um, consumer spending and industrial uh, expenditures through increasing credit. They're yeah. really um, very debt-ridden right now, and uh, this is going to be an issue. It was interesting that after they announced the uh, slowest GDP growth rate, the markets really did not react too unfavorably because consumer spending is up over 9%. And, uh, you know, industrial in investments are over, are higher than GDP. Well, it growth. The only uh, way you can do that is through extending more credit. Well, it, Richard, if, if, correct me if I'm wrong. You said a second ago that the, the government, to a degree, is propping up the consumer spending? Well, I, indirectly through making credit easy to get. Okay. They've okay. Uh, put in an awful lot of money to the Chinese banks to allow for uh, loans. Okay. All right. So then let's touch on the workforce piece of this, because as Marshall mentioned, you have a, a, an ever-increasing you know, group of, of people that are getting out of the workforce in China right now. You obviously had the one-child policy in, in play for such a long period of time, Richard. So how much growth do, does China need to have within its workforce moving forward, let's say over the next 10 to 15 years? Well, uh, how much growth is a great question. I'd like to point out another trend that's going on, and that's the increasing gap between rich and poor. So that's wages it, yeah. in yeah. the East Coast cities are going up really uh, drastically high, fast, and 
and uh, the gap between that and the interior um, sort of wage levels uh, in the country is greater and greater. So, in fact, you really have um, tension inside the country where um, even though the Chinese government isn't worried about getting reelected, uh, it does have to worry about people seeing it as legitimately improving the quality of life for people. So as the wages go up in the East Coast cities, manufacturing and uh, other activi- industrial activities naturally move to cheaper economies. So Vietnam is picking up a lot of yeah. work. Uh, yeah. Taiwan is picking up some work. Uh, and I think that uh, the uh, not only how much growth do you need and the problem with an aging population, but really uh, the problem with how well-distributed economic growth is. Marshall, your thoughts? Um, I uh, agree mostly with uh, what was just mentioned. I, uh, the, the one question I'd raise is the um, urban versus rural, because as we know, China's urbanizing rapidly. Uh, household incomes tend to go up in urban areas. Uh, so I, I'd have to go back and look at the data on urban-rural gaps. I've not done that, but I, I'd want to do that. But let me go back, if I can, to, the, to GDP as a number. Yeah. We understand its calculation, but the calculation of GDP is very different, I think, from what actually drives GDP. So let's, for a moment, uh, you know, assume population and resources constant, uh, which I think is a fair assumption in the case of China. What is it that really drives GDP in the long run? It's something called productivity or efficiency. Very hard to measure. Uh, I'm not an expert on it at all. Uh, but it, it, you know, very, very crudely, uh, productivity is the amount of input output we get uh, per level of input, and the standard way of looking at it is take out labor, take out capital. Um, the je ne sais quoi is called uh, total factor productivity, and that's what long run drives economic growth. Again, net of people, net of natural resources net of capital. Now, here's the problem in China. Um, it, it's hard to put an exact number on productivity, but it's clear that productivity growth in China has been low, and some economists say it's been negative uh, since as early as 2007. And certainly, uh, uh, I would say with a little more certainty, certainty since, say, 2012-2013. Right. Contrast with the U.S. is really interesting because we complain about our productivity levels, which seem to be, you know, from zero to one percent increase a year. My gosh, that's low. Why aren't we seeing the benefits of automation, etc.? cetera? Uh, but in China, in most industrial sectors, productivity has been going down. One of the reasons it's going down goes right back to what Richard said in the beginning. Uh, all the money that's been thrown into the economy – Per, per dollar per RMB produces less and less mm-hmm. output. It's a law of diminishing returns. It's quite standard. So China's got this dilemma. In order to continue growth, they've got to turn around productivity. And that takes us back to 2025. Um, they've got a lot of debt, as was pointed out. Who's going to repay the debt? No one knows. 
So it's a race between China's ability to move into leading-edge industries. Uh, we can go down the list of them, ranging from green energy to artificial intelligence um, to 5G, etc. It's a race of getting in those industries where, where productivity will increase versus right. paying off this mountain of debt that's accumulating. So, Richard, even though you both mentioned that uh, the the trade deal part of this is is relatively small, I wanted to touch on it for a second and whether or not there would be some influence by these numbers in terms of trying to maybe move a step quicker towards getting a trade deal done. Probably not. <laughs> uh, I think that uh, the Chinese unilaterally offered to uh, eliminate some tariffs in the meeting that uh, pres- that President Trump had with Xi Jinping uh, at the G20, and uh, really, uh, the most analysis that I see shows relatively little impact on the ta- from the tariffs. So if a good coming from China is tariffed, then one logical thing for a company to do would be to source it from somewhere else. And sure enough, imports from other countries are way up, uh, even though imports from China are definitely down. Now, uh, in regard to how much pressure that will put, this will put on the Chinese to do something, uh, I really think that the other problems are a lot bigger. Being able to solve their productivity problem, being able to uh, get out of the increasingly deep debt trap mm-hmm. that they're in, um, and you know, dealing with uh, demographic change, which is a generational problem that goes all the way back to the one-child policy. Marshall, your thoughts? Um, I would uh, agree 100%. Add another thing, however. Um, we are focusing on trade um, as if the problems of the U.S. would be solved if China bought more from us. The underlying problem, however, for us is very, just like for China, is very different from trade. Our underlying problem is that we're not moving forward in those industries which likely, not certainly, industrial policy is very, very chancy, likely but not certainly, will be critical for the 21st century and beyond. Right. 5G is exemplary of this. You have a Chinese company called Huawei. Um, in many ways, this is a great company. In many ways, it also is influenced by the state and must follow whatever the state asks it to do in most matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the way it is in China. It's a different system from ours. I'm not saying good, bad. I'm just saying that's the way it is. We don't have a company in the U.S. capable of competing with Huawei in 5G. The strongest Western competitors are Nokia and Ericsson, right? Yeah. And um, they are relatively small compared to Huawei. Uh, So the question is, why aren't we in this space? Why are we complaining that the Chinese are unfair, Um, which they may be by our standards? Uh, They probably don't think they're unfair by their standards, but by our standards, 
you know, we can even say they're unfair, but still, why aren't we competing? That's my question. So I think that Marshall has a really good point, and one of the big concerns that we should have is the unraveling of global supply chains that's happening. Yeah. Partially due to policy and, and uh, well, largely due to policy. Uh, and certainly there are a lot of problems in our relationship with China. Uh, you talk about stolen IP or uh, you talk about government interference in markets. And, um, you know, the, the need to really have a more free market economy in China are things that China needs to solve. Uh, certainly we're not going to do it for them. It can go one of two ways. It is true that if you don't have the human resource capability to deal with new technologies, you're at somebody else's mercy. But the American telecom companies kind of made a business decision that there wasn't enough value added in investing in 5G or they would buy it off the shelf or something. And um, this has led us to a point where most advanced electronic products are, you know, international. Eight or nine different countries right. are inside an iPhone. Uh, and we are seeing that beginning to unravel, uh, along with the situation between the U.S. and China. Japan has just made an announcement a few weeks ago that it was using national security concerns mm. as a reason to stop exporting semiconductor materials into South Korea. And this was really right out of President Trump's playbook. And uh, when you have this kind of unraveling going on, I'm afraid we all lose. We're joined uh, on the phone by Marshall Meyer, uh, Professor Emeritus here at the Wharton School, Richard Dasher, Director of the U.S. Asia Technology Management Center at Stanford University. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I- I've seen it written a couple of in a couple of places, Marshall, of whether or not there's a, 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 a sagging level of confidence in the government in what and how they are running uh, the economy and running the country right now. Well, how do you respond to that? Which country are you speaking China, to? specifically. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, actually, well played, Marsh. Yes. <laughs> well played. Took me a second uh, there, yes. Uh, I, I, if you look at the consumer confidence numbers, I could pull them up in a nanosecond here, but I won't take your time to do that. Yeah, they're off a little bit in China, but not, not dramatically. Uh, I think that... Um, uh, there, you, there, 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 despite the efforts to stimulate the economy, uh, there, there are some signs at the edges, which I see from companies, not in national economic statistics, that uh, consumer spending is flagging a little bit or even more than a little bit in China. Uh, the re- I, I think the reason for this is that uh, people are not confident uh, that um, uh, that they'll be able to take care of the education of their children, medical needs, which can be very expensive in China, housing. These are three huge family expenditures without saving any more. And so the savings rate in China uh, uh, stays at around 45%, which is huge. Right. Uh, where does that money go? That goes generally into the commercial banks. Uh, what do the commercial banks uh, do with it? Uh, often 
they loan it to state-owned enterprises uh, and to some extent to local government or local government uh, financing vehicles, uh, adding to GDP again, but not adding to productivity. So, yeah, I think that's a big problem for China, getting enough confidence among consumers so they're willing to spend to get this money out of the banks into companies, companies producing goods and services of use to consumers. Mm-hmm. How they're going to do this, uh, I don't know, but it's a major challenge. Richard? If I can add to what Marshall is saying, I think that this is probably at least part of the kind of concerns for the uh, government, current government for staying in power. Uh, the legitimacy of the government is really, um, in an authoritarian regime, really still does have uh, a dependency on how good people think the government is doing, handling the situation for them. And I think that uh, she is under pressure from a number of different sources. This is one and how the government does, if it's just going to continue to uh, do fiscal investments in infrastructure and make credit looser and looser, uh, eventually that's not going to work. And um, you may really have a hard drop, uh, or along with that, you have to look at the situation in Hong Kong and the kind of you know political pressure that she is under from um, that uh, development. So I think that uh, you see she being uh, much more, I, I might as well use the word paranoid, about uh, keeping in power. And this yeah. is reflected in a more kind of authoritarian, strict, top-down approach. Uh, we'll see um, what happens. But Richard, I, President Xi is president for life. What what should he have to worry about, correct? Yeah, um, that's right. Presidents for life don't have good retirement plans. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. So, uh, so Richard, as, as this plays out, where are the areas of focus you think that, that we should be looking at? And, and there is an element of this that, that obviously will be impacting the United States moving forward. Well, in my opinion, the uh, tariffs are relatively ineffective, and they don't address the problems that we really have with China. We really need to um, uh, move back toward a rule-based kind of international uh, system. Uh, We need to worry about IP. We need to uh, try to encourage China to join the club of other advanced nations that have intellectual property to protect uh, and that um, recognize each other's need to protect international uh, intellectual property. Uh, For that kind of um, matter, tariffs don't do anything. They're a very blunt instrument and basically give you sort of a superficial change in the, um, the, uh, the trade balance that even itself is, is not really um, accurate if you're only looking on a bilateral basis. Marshall? I think that we've gone down a blind alley with tariffs for all the reasons just mentioned. We know the history of tariffs. Uh, they don't do a lot of good. 
they often end in economic downturns. We have to have a more balanced policy. On the one hand, yes, the U.S. has to grow its fundamental industrial capacity. Whether the government can guide this or not, who knows? Though I think there's a lot of evidence out there that government support has been critical in many, many of our technologies, even today in Silicon Valley. I think that the next step, if we could take a next step, would be take a much more balanced view and think of the following, following up on what Richard said. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, rebalance the equation a little bit through affirmative efforts in the United States. On the other hand, worry a little bit, maybe a lot more, about what would happen if she were precipitously pushed out of power. Is this going to be a good thing or not a good thing? And use that to calibrate the amount of pressure we put on China. I'm not convinced that talk about regime change in China, coming from folks like Bannon, is helpful in the current context. Gentlemen, thanks very much for your insight. As always, great to talk to you both. Thank you, Marshall. Thank you, Richard. Thanks, Thank you. Thank you. Marshall Meyer, Professor Emeritus here at the Wharton School. Richard Dasher, Director of the U.S. Asia Technology Management Center out at Stanford University. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.